two and three, we are live. Hello, everyone. This is Mission Control for podcast, the podcast Nobody Knows But Us, and it's called Money Talks and Bullshit Walks, Philadelphia from 1980 to present. Today, Joe, we want to welcome one of my best friends and the former city editor of the Philadelphia Daily News. A what? Yeah. <laughs> Can you believe that? I know somebody. Wow. I'm impressed. Mike, like Joe, is basically a lifelong resident of Philadelphia. Uh, and he tells, he's going to tell us about himself, but not his personal life. And uh, first, Mike, let's talk about when you were the editor of the Daily News. Well, city editor. City editor. Anyway, um, I got that job in the early spring of 1985. <clears throat> and I stayed in it until... Um, sometime in 88, and then I resigned. I, re I left the paper, I left the business. I was thoroughly and totally burned out. Was there one person that caused you to burn out? No, it wasn't a person, it was, it was more the, um, the grind of it. Um, I was working really long hours every single day. And after I got the job, maybe two months after I got the job, move happened. And then mm. there was a newspaper strike um, that summer. So it was, it was a very difficult time to be in the newspaper business here in Philly. And um, people walk, the reporters walked out in, in August and they didn't come back till October. And by okay. then the move commission had been, um, had been meeting and there was no one covering them. <laughs> so we had a lot of catch up to do. Yeah, uh, well, um, I'm going to ask about MOVE, but I, I did want to get some your thoughts um, about some stuff that ha that occurred early on in the 80s. Uh, you and I have talked about Abscam. Um, <laughs> so uh, if you can remember, uh, and it's a little bit before when you started, um, what was the reaction uh, to the indictment? Do you recall? Well, I was at the paper. I, I joined the paper in 77. Oh, that so, was became, when you became the... Uh, yeah, I was a reporter. I was a reporter until 85. Okay. And um, so I was around for Abscam, for sure. Um, it was a spectacular story. It was sensational. And it was sensational in a way that um, was unlike other sensational stories like, like Gary Heidnick or Move. There was no death or destruction. It was just it was a lot of fun to cover because it had so much um, absurdity to it. I, you start with the, the name of the company that the FBI and this uh, Melvin Weinberg concocted, Abdul Enterprises. I mean, right away, it's funny. Well, then well, then you got- Wait a minute, are you gonna get back to that? <laughs> Abdul Enterprises? Oh yeah. Yeah, that was the name. and. Um, at, at, uh, there was a point where someone said, what did Abscam stand for? They asked the FBI or the, the um, U.S. Attorney's Office, and someone said Arab scam. And some Ar Arab American group complained, and they said, oh, wait, we meant it stood for Abdul scam, because we called the company Abdul Enterprises. So, um, so it had a lot of great stuff to it. There was um, a couple of, of um, qu 
quotes that I remember. Angelo Araketti, the mayor of Camden, remember that guy? He got caught up in it and um, he's, he, he was heard on a wiretap saying, I can deliver Atlantic City to you. <laughs> and then there was the, the bullshit um, walks, money talks quote from Ozzie Myers. And uh, of course, and then um, there was, uh, who was the uh, New Jersey congressman who got ensnared in it? Um, it was in Florida, right? No, it was some nah, other guy. I, later. I can't remember his name. They they told him they would um, they would give him shares of stock in a titanium mine in <laughs> Africa, in Africa. And he and, bought it. <laughs> uh, he he said, and in return, they asked him to um, sponsor legislation in in the U.S. Congress that would um, give them some sort of advantage in their titanium mine, and he went for it. His defense at trial was that he didn't take any money, so it was okay. <laughs> wow, that's a candidate for city council. Yes, he, he was tailor-made for Philadelphia city government, but he was from New Jersey. Then um, um, my enduring um, um, image from that whole time was um, Gil Spencer was the editor of the Daily News at the time, and he was a very colorful, colorful character. And he had a source deep within the FBI, and we never found out who it was. And the, one night, um, Gill stayed at the paper really late. I was working the overnight shift, and he reached this source at two or three in the morning, and he interviewed whoever it was. We always, <clears throat> we always, excuse me, we thought it was a woman, but we weren't sure. <clears throat> and um, Appscan was starting to break loose at the time, and he interviewed this person on the phone, and we all stood around listening to him, and he, at the end of the call, he said, uh, he said, you're the best I ever had. Thanks very much. And he hung up. And the, the Night City editor, who was this old crusty guy, Will Williams, said, Jesus Christ, Spencer, you're just interviewing him. You're not making love to him. And what'd you get? And he had the bullshit walks, money talks quote. That's what the guy gave him. And um, so that went in the paper the next day. Uh, you know, we, we pulled it all together by five in the morning. So, yeah, AppScan was a tremendous story. But during that time, I guess just around that time, uh, Bill Green was elected mayor. Um, and he was kind of an odd figure in the sense that he could have been probably congressman for life if he wanted to. So I always had the impression that he was sort of a reluctant guy to, to be the mayor. He'd never run anything. He'd never been like a, in any position where he had to do something to make something happen. What, what was your impression of Green uh, in terms of his uh, joining the city as a, as a, from Congress to uh, the mayor? You know, I, my, my feeling about him is it's one of the worst matches of person and job, him and, wow. him and the mayor's job. Um, he, he just, he wasn't, um, he hated city council. I think he called it the worst deliver, deliberative body in the free world or something like that. I, I don't know the exact quote. Then his son and, became a, uh, a city councilman himself. Yeah. Um, he, he didn't get along with council. He didn't like dealing with them. He hated dealing with the unions and he had a, he had a, a lot of union issues that he had to resolve and he did resolve them. Um, he didn't like dealing with the press. He, he just didn't like the, the job itself because it wasn't part, he was very patrician and um, 
very, um, he expected everyone to behave himself and herself in his presence, just like he behaved. And it just wasn't, it just rubbed him the wrong way. Every time he dealt with people, the, um, the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers went out on strike, I think, in his first two years, maybe something like that. And um, days. He, was, he was negotiating with um, John Murray, who was the president of the PFT at the time. And Murray would bring his negotiating team, which was maybe six or seven people, to City Hall. And they'd go to the mayor's conference room. And Bill Green was there alone for the city. And um, he had these glasses he used to wear, these little half glasses. Yeah. Whenever he had to read something, he'd take a long time to pull out his glasses and make a big show of putting them on. And it just really bothered Mary and the other people. So Mary thought he would play a practical joke where he, um, he went out and he bought a bunch of half glasses for each one of his negotiating team. And he told them, okay, when Greeny, he called him Greeny, when Greeny takes out his glasses, everyone do it at the same time. And it'll, it'll like break up the tension and make things fun. Well, it had the opposite impact. Green was outraged and he stormed out of the meeting. He stormed out of the negotiating session and he had to be convinced to come back. And then he, he actually got the, got the deal done with uh, Mary, but he, he just hated it. Well, Green, as as I recall, and maybe I'm wrong, he got elected uh, with a lot of union support, and uh, he ended up having to, with the teachers union in particular, they had, Rizzo had given them basically anything they had wanted, and he walked into the job with a $250, $280 million deficit, and then he, right. had yep. war, he had to go to war with the people who helped him get elected. He did, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and he, one thing he doesn't get a lot of credit for was um, at a time when the, the city was racially divided, very bitterly racially divided, um, for, for no small reason, Frank Rizzo, um, Green promoted a lot of black politicians in, and brought people like Wilson Good into you know, prominent positions. He was, Green was one of the people who, who was uh, Joe Coleman's um, support. He was a big supporter of Joe Coleman as city council president, and Coleman did get that job. Well, so go ahead. He, he should get, Green should get a lot of credit for that, and also for dealing with the labor unions and um, bringing that budget deficit down um, enormously during his time. He, so he was an effective mayor. He just did not like the job. Well, you know, in, along the lines of good, he also appointed the first black and, uh, of course, a woman uh, to head the school board, and that was Connie Clayton. And uh, I think that we can all three agree that pretty much, uh, you know, a black uh, managing director and a black head of the school district is ho-hum now. But uh, as you said, the city was so racially divided. Uh, that was a big deal. It was. It was a very big deal, and and a, a black uh, city council president. Right, all, so, all simultaneously. And Wilson Good is managing director, the number two job in the city. Mm -hmm. and, and and Good really wasn't a big high profile guy. He wasn't uh, someone that was up and down the streets uh, protesting this and that. He was more of a technocrat, right? He was. Um, he had been on the uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission as a commissioner prior to becoming managing director. He had a low profile and um, 
he was, I guess his reputation was as a technocrat. That was the first time I ever heard that word, technocrat. When Well, now you've heard it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, I had never heard that word before until Wilson Good arrived on the scene. And then um, the paper, I was a reporter then, and the paper um, assigned me to um, follow Wilson Good around for two weeks. So I would go to his house early in the morning. He'd leave his house at five in the morning. He wow. lived in South, Southwest Philly. And um, this is when he was managing director. So I drive down there and I get in his uh, city car. He had a driver and a city car. And I just was with him from morning until night for two weeks. And um, I watched the way he dealt with people. And I watched um, uh, the way people reacted to him. And I, I thought, um, I thought it was a good, thought he was going, he was going places for sure. Uh, people just really responded to him very positively. And he had a good way with people, despite being very tightly wound. Um, I was in his office um, in City Hall late one night, and he was taking phone calls, and I was just sitting there. And um, he, he got off the phone, and one of his, he had many phones on his desk. He had probably 25, I shouldn't say phones, uh, phone lines. He had maybe 25 phone lines at this console. And one of them rings and he says, oh, this is home, I need to take this. He gets on the phone and he says, um, uh-huh, you did? Okay, uh-huh, all right. And he hangs up. And I said, what was that? And he said, that was my son. He told me he just got into Penn. And his reaction was, like, I thought, oh my God, this guy is, he's almost an automaton. Well, he's wrapped so tight, he couldn't even, I, I don't think he wanted to celebrate in front of me. But, you know, I, I really wouldn't have minded or, or uh, blamed him for it. Um, and I, I wrote a story, and uh, it was a very um, positive story about him, a profile. And then I saw him at a, um, there was a big shooting up in um, around 63rd and Callow Hill in that area. Some Somebody shot up a furniture store up there, and um, they sent me out there, and Wilson Good was on the scene, and he said, I really enjoyed that story. I'm going to send you a an autographed photo. Did he? He never did. <laughs> I never got it. Uh, he was a strange, a strange dude. Um, and after, do you want to get into move at this point, or? Well, I'm I'm just about getting to move. Um, uh, and I would just say uh, his legacy, uh, one way or the other, is always going to be tied to move. But Move had been around before the bombing. Um, can you describe uh, Move? And I mean, people call them a radical back to nature uh, group. And in fact, they, they, a police officer was killed in 78. Um, so did, did the police actions that day and bombing the, uh, on Osage Avenue, did that give you or anyone in the media in the city, did you believe that anyone would react like that? Um, you mean in the sense of um, bombing? Well, not the, necessarily um, in the sense of bombing, but for him to uh, approve the bombing itself. Uh, oh, it, right. Okay. Final. He was the final uh, say on that, wasn't he? Um, there's a, it's a matter of dispute um, who, who actually approved the bombing. Sambor, Gregor Sambor, who was the police commissioner at the time, blamed, uh, in a, 
he didn't do it directly, but he indirectly blamed good. Um, Leo Brooks, who was the managing director at the time and should have been in charge of the scene in, you know, on good's behalf, blamed Sambor. Um, and then the decision to let the fire burn, um, Harry Richmond said he was the fire commissioner. He said that he was ordered not to put out the fire. Ooh, by um, who? Do you remember? Leo Brooks. Who was the managing director. And then he decided that um, he would overrule Brooks and put the fire out, but then he decided it was too dangerous for firefighters because of gunfire. Um, it, was, it was a fiasco from, from you know, stem to stern. And um, the MOVE Commission ended up you know, sort of wrapping up the whole thing in a, in a conclusion of general malfeasance and, and um, incompetence. Yeah, you mentioned to me that uh, when, when I started uh, discussing what I was up to, you said, well, the first thing I would do is to read uh, the MOVE Commission. And that was a pretty representative group uh, of people. That they, they weren't people that were there to, to sort of sugarcoat the whole thing. Uh, and so that was a pretty big deal. But nobody ever got arrested from the city uh, or, you know, the, and nobody from the police, nobody from the fire department, nobody was ever arrested. Um, a number of MOVE members were arrested and spent a lot of time in jail. Yeah. Uh, based upon what the commission said, and uh, recently, Good has said that the city, he apologizes to MOVE, and he thinks the city uh, should apologize to MOVE. Uh, do you think they should? I'm not sure what it, I, I know it has symbolic value. Um, uh, is the apology supposed to be directed to move or to the, the Osage Avenue residents? I, the way I read it, um, uh, it, it was to the move members. I, uh, and um, I know the people, uh, the neighbors were never ever uh, in love with uh, move. Well, you know, it, it um, the thing about MOVE, just going back to what they were, um, the first question anyone ever asked about them was, is MOVE an acronym? Does it stand for something? And the answer was no. Um, then the next question would be, well, what are they? What do they believe in? What do they stand for? And everyone struggled to describe their, their uh, philosophy, their beliefs, their, you know, what their reason for existence. People couldn't figure it out. When you ask them, they talked about things ranging from animal rights to justice for oppressed people and everything in between. And it, it also depended on which member you asked. So um, the, the, the public face of MOVE was disruption and, um, um, uh, what's the word? Any, any neighborhood they, they moved into, they disrupted. Um, they were in Palton Village in 78 before that confrontation, and then they moved to 6221 Osage in Southwest Philly, and they completely disrupted the neighborhood. And that was, um, that was uh, that's what ended up causing the police uh, to, to come out there. Uh, the, the bunker that they built on the roof, the loudspeakers that were going 24-7. So the neighbors really uh, had pretty much had it. 
and they, they did. Um, you know, with them. that April, April of 1985, I was city editor, and um, I had a reporter um, named Steve Marquez, who was, um, he covered neighborhoods for the paper. He was a very talented writer and um, reporter. And he went out to the move house. He, he had taken some calls from some of the Osage Avenue neighbors um, to the effect that no one's helping us out. We've gone to uh, the cops. We've gone to l and um, We don't know what to do. And he went out there and um, interviewed people on the block and tried to interview move people, but they just yelled at him. And he came back to the city room and he said, this is a real problem. The, um, and he wrote a story about it. And the very next um, month, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a month later that the, that the move thing blew up. Um, we took it seriously, but we didn't really know what else to do about it. We never uh, assumed that it would turn into what it turned into. And the, the Saturday before it happened, that was the Saturday before Mother's Day that, that year, um, I got a phone call late in the evening uh, from someone to say, you better get down to the move house right now. Um, there's something going on. There's cops everywhere. So I drove down there and um, we didn't know it at the time. We were all standing on the street, but they were drilling holes through the common wall in the basement between the move house and, the, and one of the adjacent houses. And they were trying to get listening devices through the, um, the drilled holes. Police? And they, which they did. Um, and it, it was, the whole thing was very mysterious. Um, there were cops around, no one would say anything. There were a lot of plain clothes there. And then that Sunday, Mother's Day, um, I went back down there and toward the end of the afternoon, they evacuated the neighborhood and they told all the people, you'll only be gone, you'll only be out for a few hours and then you can come back. So all these people left their pets, their homes, all their possessions and followed orders and left. And you know the rest, uh, they never made it back and their whole neighborhood got burned down. Um, and so then um, that happened, that was May. And then a couple months later, the newspapers went out on strike. And I decided that since I was, um, I was management and I wasn't on strike and I had to cross the picket lines, I tried to figure out a way to be useful during that time. So I decided I would interview or try to interview Leo Brooks, Harry Richmond, Gregor Sambor, and Wilson Good. The only one who would talk to me on the record was Gregor Sambor. Who was the police commissioner? Who was the police commissioner. Leo Brooks talked to me on the phone, but he talked to me off the record. And it doesn't really matter now, and I'll, I'll tell you some of the things he said. He quit 10 days after move, after the bombing. Oh. Leo Brooks was gone. Um, he, was a, he was a retired um, three-star general. I think it was three-star army. And um, he just threw in the towel. He told me um, on the phone, he said, I hated the job. And I said, why? And he said, um, he said, there was always a beeper on my backswing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I play golf and go out there and I'm about to get into a shot and um, my beeper goes off. The, the, this job is too... It's too all-consuming. 
And he said, you know what my, my management philosophy was? I said, yeah, what's that? He said, um, organize, analyze, prioritize, deputize. And deputize is the most important thing. Like he wanted to delegate everything. And Wilson Good, who had done the job, didn't want him to do that. So he was very unhappy in the job. And after the move thing happened, he was gone. Um, the Gregor Sambor, um, I, I got to him through an attorney named John Morris. You may know him, Pete. John Morris was uh, Gregor Sambor's attorney, and I knew him. And I called him up and I said, Hey, I'd like to talk to Sambor. Can you set it up? And he said, Yeah, but I got to be there when you do it. And I said, How come? And he said, You'll see. So John Morris was a real good guy. And um, I went down to the roundhouse to interview Sambor, and John was there. And five minutes into the interview, I understood why John was there, which was because Sambor was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, he just really, he didn't seem to understand the gravity of the situation, in, in my view, the, of the move situation. And um, all he wanted to talk about was how much he wanted to become police commissioner. And he said, thank God and thank Wilson Good that I made it. And I just, it was, it was like talking to a wall almost. I couldn't get anything out of him about move. Harry Richmond, I reached on the phone and he said, I don't want to talk to you about anything. Um, and uh, Good wouldn't talk to me. So um, after the, the night it happened, which was that Monday night, um, I got a call. I was at the paper all night and I got a call from, um, the police reporter at the time, a guy named Joe O'Dowd, who I'd worked with for many years. And um, he said, when, they, when the move people fled the house to get away from the fire, there were cops in the back alley. Um, and he said there was a shootout. And the move may have fired shots, no one was sure, but he said, a policeman told him, that's where I dropped the motherfucker meaning one of the move people. Right. And I said, what, which cop said that? And he said, I, I can't give you his name. You just got to go with it. And we did. And um, just based on Joe Dowd's say so. And everyone denied it after that. All the cops in the back alley denied it. However, I still believe it to this day. If you remember, Birdie Africa went running yeah, out of the, the flames into the arms of a guy named Jim Berghire, right. uh, one of the cops who was in the back alley. Right. And Birdie Africa was saved, but everyone else perished in supposedly in the fire. But the word was from Joe was that one of the cops shot one of the move people. And so when the paper was on strike and the move commission was meeting, I got a call from a detective at the commission. And he asked me to come down to be interviewed. So I went down and he said, I understand that you think there was a shootout. What's your evidence? And I said, all I know is what Joe O'Dell told me. And I believe Joe O'Dell. And he said, um, I said, you're going to have to talk to all the cops who were there. And he said, we've already done that. No one, obviously they had already done that. No one uh, will corroborate it. And that was the end of it. But to this day, I really believe it happened. Mm -hmm. well, uh, 
I know you're a big sports fan, and uh, I might just interject now that we've sort of moved off move a little bit, that uh, in 80, uh, the Eagles went to the Super Bowl. Uh, they lost, uh, and the Phillies uh, somehow <laughs> won the World Series. Uh, but can you describe what the city was like uh, in 80 as compared to 08? Uh, was it crazier or it was the same or because nobody had won anything for a long time prior to 80? Well, the, um, the Phillies, the Phillies World Series win was, um, that was the Pete Rose team. Right. And, and um, Pete Rose, Mike Schmidt, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it was the biggest thing to happen in sports um, in Philadelphia since uh, 1960, I guess, when the Eagles won the, won the NFL championship, not called the Super Bowl at that time. Um, so we were very happy about that. But the city at the time was was a mess. It was nothing like like what it is now. The there were a lot of concerns about crime and litter and people leaving the city in droves, businesses shutting down, um, union strikes. The unions were very powerful then. The municipal unions. Earl Stout was head of uh, District Council 33, the sanitation workers. Right. He was a very powerful character. Um, he was known as Lord of the Flies because he, because um, of the, he could he could take all the trash men out on strike, which he did uh, in '86, I think it was, for at least a month, maybe more. Trash piled up all over the city. Uh, it was terrible. And, yeah, um, the uh, the I, the whole uh, urban legend was that uh, the negotiations for the contract, the ending of the contract, was always sort of towards the beginning of the summer, so that there would be some leverage for the unions uh, to let the trash pile <laughs> up and um, stink and all that uh, sort of thing. So. Uh, Stout, I guess, was, uh, he knew what he was doing and he knew the membership would, would probably file, follow, follow him. He was very crafty. I, I remember, um, I actually had to look this quote up to make sure I had it correct, but, um, he was arrested and charged. Homework. Yeah, this is my homework. Um, uh, Earl Stout was charged with stealing, I think it was 750000 from the union um, operating fund and uh, when he was convicted he, he had maintained his innocence until the very end um, and then he said uh, he said I still say I'm innocent but that doesn't make any difference does it but worse things than this can happen that's the way it goes when you've been at the top <laughs> and in his world he was at the top um, but it was um, the city back then was not um, Downtown was not attractive at all. There were very few new restaurants. That the restaurant renaissance was just taking hold at the time, and but it hadn't really gone anywhere yet. So what were, were few, the, what were the two or three uh, restaurants that sort of paved the way uh, to this the restaurant um, renaissance that uh, occurred? Well, the one was uh, the Frog. Uh, Steve poses. Oh, um, I remember that. Sure, great place. At 16th and Locust, around there. Samson, Samson um, Street, was it? Uh, 
Sansom. Well, there was, yeah, there was one on Sansom. He had two. He had one on Sansom and he had a fancier place at 16th and Locust. And um, he was definitely in the vanguard, Steve Poses. Um, yeah. And then you had uh, Lebec Fan, which was on a, on a higher plane, um, but still um, part of the beginning of it. The, oh, La Terrasse, yes, on, in um, University City on uh, Sansom Street, like 30, between uh, 34th and 36th on Sansom. That was another mm-hmm. leader in the restaurant renaissance. But yeah. um, those are the two I can think of. When, when uh, I don't know if you were there, but um, the construction of Liberty Place by Willard Rouse was, I think, one of the things that sort of began Philadelphia's comeback from nowhere. Uh, do you remember? I, I'm not sure if you were at the paper then, but do you remember anything about that? Uh, and um, Councilman Tyune and uh, Nikki Scarfo. Yeah, that was the Nikki Scarfo shakedown of Willard Rouse and uh, thwarted by the FBI. Was Rouse, um, Rouse went to the FBI and uh, said, um, uh, Nikki Scarfo and, um, is it Harry Gennady? Um, yeah, 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 I think it was Gennady. Hey, we got about a minute to go. I think we're gonna have to bring Mike back for uh, at least a couple more shows. What do you think? I, I'm in. He's in, Joe. This is gold. <laughs> and it didn't cost us a beer. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's do it again, definitely. Good well, stuff. we got stuff to ask you about Steve Trace, uh, Wilfredo Santiago, Live Aid, the Sinking Homes of Logan, Heidnick, oh the House of Horrors. I told you, Mike, Mike. you're locked in for for years, buddy. <laughs> years. We have to with with Move. We have to talk about Ernie Edwards. Yes, I forgot uh, all about Ernie Edwards. That's a big one. So yeah. yeah. So do you yeah, remember Edwards? I, I, uh, 